There was an art exhibit in London back in 2017 that I still kind of regret missing. The exhibit was called The Glass Room, and each piece challenged viewers to consider their relationship with technology and the systems and organizations behind a lot of the technologies that we use every day, which is a sort of bland way of describing the often beautiful, very poignant pieces that were on display at this show. There was a piece called Ashley Madison Angels at Work in London in which 3D renderings of women called out from iPads that were installed around the space, their words taken from actual conversational text revealed as part of the hack of the adultery-focused Ashley Madison dating site. And we later learned that most of the women on the site were actually fake sock puppet accounts, not even real women. They kept up flirty conversations to keep men coming back to the site and paying their monthly fees. And those were the conversations that were performed through these iPads. There was another called Megapixels, which had viewers walk up to a camera which would scan their face and use it to search a facial recognition database, printing out a receipt, the kind that you might get at a grocery store, listing your search results, a match percentage from the database. Pieces from other iterations of this show, which have been put on display in various cities around the world since the early 2000s, Versions of it have been displayed in 21 countries at nearly 100 events, and there are several on display right now, as I record this, around the world as well. Included amongst those other iterations is a piece called Amazon Futures, which is a glass sculpture of an Amazon warehouse filled with bees, the drones working the shelves. There's another called Data Production Labor that allows visitors to hold their phone under a camera and browse Facebook for a few minutes, and the machine then spits out a tally of the labor that you have just put in for Facebook, viewing ads and producing engagement metrics that they can sell, along with a tally of what you could have earned working a minimum wage job instead. It also encourages participants to seek out that fee from Facebook for having put in that work. I think my favorite of these pieces, though, and the reason I remember reading about this iteration of The Glass Room in particular, separate from all of the other showings that it has had around the world with its many different tech-centric works, is called How Long Does It Take to Read Amazon Kindle's Terms and Conditions? True to the name, this piece is just a tablet with some headphones attached where you can watch and listen as an actor reads the Amazon Kindle Terms and Conditions from beginning to end, all the way through, a process that takes nearly nine hours at a normal reading speed. It was 73,198 words long at the time. And the point being made here, pretty clearly, I think, is that these terms of service and similar contract-like agreements presented by these big tech companies are getting a little bit out of hand. Tech companies are not alone in utilizing these sorts of agreements, of course, though they do tend to be the most obvious and ubiquitous-seeming examples these days, because of where we apply our attention, on average. There are three main common types of standard form contract applied to products and services in this way. The first is the aforementioned terms and conditions, also called terms of service or terms of use, 
This type of contract is generally applied to a service, and you, the would-be user of said service, must click through, or via some other means imply your agreement to, some kind of boilerplate contract, something universally applicable according to that service provider's lawyers, before you're able to use Amazon's Kindle, Twitter, Facebook, or some other service, offline or online. There's also the service level agreement, which is typically used when a service is being provided to a client rather than a collection of users. This type of document outlines the level of quality, availability, and responsibility that are expected within different facets of the work being done, and what shall be done if those standards are not met or maintained. And then there's the EULA, the E-U-L-A, which stands for End User License Agreement. The EULA is a little newer, as it's the consequence of software legislation, especially focused on how the copy of a piece of protected property, the software is written and owned by a company, but they are selling you, the customer, the right to use a copy of that property in some specific way or ways. And thus, you will see EULA text anytime you install Office on your computer, but also increasingly when you buy a new set of headphones, upgrade your tractor, or drive your new car for the first time. Anything with software in it, in other words, which is just about everything these days, will likely require you to agree to a EULA. And the rationale for this is that it gives the software makers the chance to get you to agree to things you might not otherwise agree to, things that very often extend their rights and their ability to tell you how you may use the thing you just bought at a moment when you are least likely to fight them on it. All of these contract types, but the EULA in particular, are informed by or descendants of another family of contracts that are often referred to collectively as shrink-wrap contracts. This type of boilerplate contract was traditionally, and is still today, typically included inside the shrink-wrap of a product, meaning you get a little slip of paper in the box of the software that you just bought that tells you what you're agreeing to, and that paper generally includes a means by which you can disagree with the terms, usually something like returning the product to wherever you bought it from within 30 days or something along those lines. There are similar online versions of the same type of contract called click wrap and browse wrap, which aim for the same outcomes of shrink wrap contracts, but which generally apply to downloaded software and software that you use online, including software as a service style products, respectively. Laws vary from region to region in terms of what they honor and what they refuse to honor in these secondary implied consent contracts. Some states here in the U.S., for instance, enforce the agreements included with such software if the user fails to return the software after opening it, while others do not. Some countries consider these contracts to be valid, and others consider them to be rights grabs, attempted by unscrupulous companies that want to bypass copyright rules, or who are trying to trick consumers, because it's generally understood that even in regions where these little slips of paper that assert corporate rights to purchasers of whatever are not legally enforced, they will still be assumed to be legitimate by most people, because most people are not aware of their actual rights beyond broad-based fundamentals, and thus will be more likely to adhere to these companies' wishes lest they find themselves on the wrong side of a lawsuit. 
What I want to talk about today are implied contracts and fine print, and how both can complicate the legally vital concept of informed consent. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. There's a website called Terms of Service Didn't Read, a playful moniker that alludes to the internet-conceived acronym TLDR, which stands for Too Long, Didn't Read. TOSDR, though, which can be found at tosdr.org, goes beyond implied criticism of a document's length to provide assistance in determining what is contained within the immense and often gibberish-sounding terms of service contracts that the majority of us click through without even thinking about reading them. The site gives each service's TOS a rating from A to E and outlines why they received these grades with helpful bullet points. So Google, for instance, gets a C for their terms of service, and TOSDR elucidates why saying that your identity is used in ads shown to other users, that they can collect, use, and share your location data, that they track you on other websites, and that they can use your content for all their existing and future services. Google does get credit for allowing you to access and delete your personal data and allowing you to retrieve an archive of your personal data stored on their servers. But, well, they still get a C. There are a lot of bullet points here that clarify what's contained in these contracts that we're technically sort of signing on a regular basis. And although most of us have no idea what we're giving away when we do so, there could still be legal ramifications for clicking I agree. So it's interesting but also potentially quite helpful to have a resource like TOSDR available. These little blurbs the ones most of us click through without reading, the ones summarized by this service, are important, and increasingly so, perhaps to the point that in the near future, they could be far more binding in more circumstances than they are right now. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Forbes, and it's entitled, Criticism Follows Powerful Law Group to Next Project, A Troubling Take on Consumer Contracts. This story gets a little bit detailed and convoluted, but it's a fascinating look into some of what happens behind the scenes of the groups and systems that set the tone for future lawsuits, and which interpret law actions that have come before. The powerful law group mentioned in that headline is the American Law Institute, a group made up of several thousand leading lawyers, legal scholars, and judges who periodically publish works that outline either what they think the law should be, which are called principles projects, or which outline what the law has been, how it's been applied in the past. Those are called restatements of the law. In May of 2019, this group, the ALI, voted on its newest would-be publication, the Restatement of the Law of Consumer Contracts, This work, like its other works, was highly anticipated, in part because everything the ALI publishes is considered to be quite important and influential, and there were statements of the law related to various fields of legal thought 
basically give judges a starting point as to what's been done before, which is important within a legal system that relies so heavily on prior judgments, on established precedent in making new judgments. So this group goes through the history of judgments in the United States, figuring out what positions have precedent based on those judgments, and then publishes these works that outline a collection of principles of common law that they believe have been demonstrated through the precedents that we've established over time. They look through what's been done and summarize what it all means, and those summaries are taken very seriously by folks up and down the judicial system. In this case, the ALI was publishing such a work about contracts between consumers and those who produce what they're consuming. And remarkably, scholars and lawyers tore into what they were doing from both sides. Arguments were made that a statement of baseline policy in this space could be devastating for certain industries, including the insurance industry, but also for consumers. The arguments meant to protect various businesses are many and varied, but those who stepped in to defend consumers in this hullabaloo claimed that the document would make it more likely that consumers would be legally beholden to essentially anything businesses wanted to put into their click-through terms of service and EULA agreements, and that they would be doing this in a space where it was both understood that most people don't read these often vast bodies of text, and that even if they did, there's an asymmetric relationship between the two parties involved. This isn't a lawyer making an agreement with a lawyer, or even a person with a lawyer making an agreement with a person with a lawyer. It's a business with a bunch of lawyers making a deal with a person who won't read the contract and who wouldn't understand it even if they did. On top of that, the publication of this document would likely lead to a situation in which every business is incentivized to block class action lawsuits and coerce harmed parties into adhering to forced arbitration policies, effectively ensuring that the person presiding over the complaint, the arbiter of the arbitration, would be working for the company. As a consequence, consistently keeping harmed parties in these matters from benefiting from the protection of the law and allowing those with sufficient money to retain legal counsel the ability to avoid punishment for any harmful things that they might do to the public that they would otherwise be sued for. Opponents of publishing this work have said, if it must be published, publish it as a principles project, one of the aforementioned, here's what we think would be ideal, someday, types of publications, so that it wouldn't become a de facto law of the land influencing court decisions with ideas that are not supported by precedent and priorities that are not based on societal well-being. 23 state attorneys general sent a letter to the ALI criticizing the decision to move forward with the vote to publish this work, and when voting day arrived, debate over the first nine sections alone of the document overwhelmed the committee, keeping them from coming to any conclusion, disallowing them from moving forward with it. And they ran out of time and had to shelve the document until next year, 2020, when it may be put up for another vote. This story, though it wasn't widely reported upon, is a big and arguably quite important story. Even if a lot of the write-ups of it focused on one of the handful of smaller issues that cluttered the process, many of which had little to do with the asymmetric relationship between consumers and producers. This story is important, though, because we live in a world 
riddled with agreements of this kind that we consent to all the time. There's been research done on how often people see these things and how many of us click past them without even giving the language used more than a passing glance. But none of the research projects that I could find seemed particularly well set up or legitimate to me. One of them found that 97% of people will click I agree before even bothering to scroll past the first few lines. But that data was collected under questionable premises. So I'll just say, for now, until we have better data that you and I know anecdotally for ourselves how frequently we encounter such screens, and you and I know how we, and possibly other people in our lives, respond to them. It's not a scientific assessment, this is not good data, but most of this fluffy data that is available at least nods toward the probability that we are not alone in our experience with these types of agreements. And we're not alone in this at a time when pretty much every product or service we engage with is incentivized to ensure it's got the legalities of our interaction with their product or service locked down in its favor, in the favor of the company rather than in ours. The idea that all of those contracts, including those that we never bothered to read, would become hardcore legally binding is cringeworthy. Yet that's what some legal experts are saying here, and that's why others did their best to torpedo its passage. That and all of the added complexities for business entities within a small collection of different industries that would be similarly harmed by the cementing of such concepts into legal canon. Take a step back and look at the bigger picture, though, and it becomes more evident that this issue is actually just part of a larger issue, one that connects to the world of consumer advocacy but doesn't end there. This is more like a piece of a modern human issue. To illuminate what I mean by that, consider the response to the somewhat recently released Mueller report, officially titled Report on the Investigation into Russian Interference in the 2016 Presidential Election. This report, though ostensibly fairly vital to understanding what happened leading up to the 2016 U.S. presidential election, especially regarding Russia's possible activities therein, was 448 pages long. It was released by the U.S. Department of Justice on April 18th, 2019, and as of now, the day I'm recording this, in late June 2019, three months later, a large minority of politicians who are commenting on the report and taking legal and policy action based on the report, when asked if they have read the report, have admitted that they have not. As of the day I'm recording this, based on survey data from a few different journalistic entities, about 80% of Democratic lawmakers have said that they have read the entire thing, and just under half of responding Republican lawmakers have indicated the same. Now, it's important to note that the majority of these lawmakers at the moment have only read the redacted report, which both truncates the total size of it and makes it a lot more difficult to read. It's also a fair bet that some of these lawmakers have said that they did read it when they've only read a summary, assuming that they probably wouldn't be caught lying, and that others have read it and, for political reasons, are saying that they have not, either to curry favor or to avoid having to answer pointed questions about it and what it contains. The content of the report aside, this seems like kind of a big deal, doesn't it? 
And it's not an uncommon thing, I know. There's a lot of paperwork being done, a lot of reports being written all the time throughout every level of government. It would almost certainly be impossible for any single lawmaker to read all of the work being produced by thousands of people across potentially relevant portions of the U.S. government and still have time for lawmaking, for food, for sleeping, and so on. But this specific instance seems particularly notable to me because it's such a matter of national conversation. This document is vital to both sides' strategies, to their talking points, to what happens next when the 2020 election rolls around. Not to mention, you know, the possibility that some foreign entity has been mucking around with one of the fundamental structures of our democratic system. And even this document may remain unread by something like a third of the most powerful politicians in the country. The readership numbers are likely even smaller for the American electorate. Some very rough numbers that I have seen indicate that although published versions of the report have become bestsellers, Despite the report also being free online, it's a solid assumption that less than 2% of Americans have actually read the report in its entirety. And maybe as many as double that have read a portion of it, more than an excerpt published in an article or newspaper somewhere, or a portion read to them by a podcaster. Somebody's actually picked up the book and read a solid chunk of it. But the data here is just as bad as that last collection of data, so take all of that with a whole shaker of salt. All the same, this is potentially both flabbergasting and totally understandable. I say the former because, again, it's such a vital document, and although the citizen readership numbers here are perhaps more understandable. It's not our job to read this type of document after all, though you could maybe make a decent argument that perhaps it should be. But the lawmakers, the people whose job it is to know about this type of thing, I don't know, it's a little bit different. But I say that this is understandable as well, because aren't we all, lawmakers and everybody else, drowning in a deluge of content, of media of various kinds, and consequently struggling to implement new means of filtering the signal from the noise, the vital from the non-vital, or even the nonsensical? Isn't this in some ways as much a sign of the times as it is a sign of how democratic systems and political bureaucracies can be overwhelmed? It's easy to criticize when we see stats about people not reading things anymore and getting all of their news from headlines. It's easy to criticize when we hear that one generation or another is getting their news from quick-paced, vertically-aligned videos on Instagram rather than the hallowed black-and-white pages of a trusted periodical. It's easy to criticize when we realize that it's becoming more difficult every day, for some of us anyway, to muster the focus required to sit down and read a book, to just read and do nothing else for a while. This is reflective of the same disdain and horror that a lot of us experience when we realize what's happening to our attention, our ability to discern the important from the unimportant, and our complexity of thinking when it comes to any one thing. How can we truly have a conversation about the Mueller report when a third of the people making laws and taking action based on its findings have not read it? How can we truly understand what's happening in the world when we can't be bothered to engage with fact-checked news beyond the first sentence or two? 
How can we grow as people when we can't even read a book cover to cover without feeling bored and disembodied by the entire process? Attention is one of the issues here, and we live, as I've discussed on this show before, in a world in which our attention is being pulled in myriad directions at once, all day, every day, with rare exceptions. Our attention has been monetized, and consequently there are incentives in place for all kinds of powerful entities who are not inherently bad or evil, or doing bad or evil things necessarily, to do things that distract us further. They do things that divide our attention, because if they don't, they will die. That's the case for corporations that are dependent on attention, to make money at least. And the same is true for all kinds of entities to greater and lesser degrees for similar reasons. Continuous partial attention is a term that was coined back in the late 90s for a modern adaptive behavior in which we've been trained to always be dividing our attention between multiple things, and not in a conscious way, which is what differentiates this from multitasking. Multitasking is where we intentionally work on multiple things simultaneously, while this, continuous partial attention, is where we, due to the incentives in place, and the realities of living amongst all the hubbub and information and inputs and priorities of the modern world spread ourselves around subconsciously in order to participate. That's the cost, in some ways, of existing today and benefiting from all of these amazing things. Through that lens, distracted learning, distracted driving, distracted lawmaking, distracted clicking, it all makes a little more sense. This isn't something we are necessarily intentionally doing. It's something that's sort of a default state for people wanting to be participatory, not wanting to miss out in an environment as information and opportunity dense as the one in which we live today. That's one facet of the click-through contract problem, I suspect. Another is that we live in a world that is becoming more complex, and as it does, we struggle to organize that complexity, and that can lead to cobbled together organizational principles that are themselves complex. So-called legalese, the terminology and style of writing often used in contracts and other legal documents, is a perfect example of this. As the world becomes more complex and interconnected, and as the laws and principles that govern said world become more complex to keep up with it, the language used to describe that world, to manage it, to set expectations within that world, also becomes more complex. The result is that, at a certain point, you need to be a legal scholar or practicing lawyer to even understand the topic of certain contracts and reports, much less ascertain their meaning and potential weaknesses and things of that nature. Thus, we find ourselves in a situation in which proof by intimidation becomes possible on the legal level. Proof by intimidation being a term most frequently used in mathematics, in which you present an argument that is intentionally laden with as many obscure phrases and as much jargon as possible, so that the audience is overwhelmed and confused into assuming that your argument makes sense. In the case of legalese, proof by intimidation can manifest in the shape of intimidating lawsuits that may or may not have any validity, but which we fear, which we avoid at all costs, whether or not there's any meat to them, because we can't understand what we are being told, the meaning that is encoded in this legalese, and would require a lawyer to even understand what's happening, much less to defend ourselves appropriately. And that can be expensive. 
This applies to the world of contract law as well. We're living in a world in which our everyday rights are being challenged by collections of phrases and references to statutes that we non-legal professionals are unlikely to understand. And that situation is considered to be legitimate because it's necessary, according to law, that these legalese-slinging entities are able to enter into contracts with people far more ignorant about how these things work than they are, or their lawyers are, anyway. Because of this complex layer that overlays all such interactions, then, in many ways we are all trusting someone else to tell us what these things mean, what is contained within that complex layer, what encoded meaning rests within all this complexity. We're relying on interpreters to serve as watchdogs for us, even if most of us don't have any way of knowing whether they're giving us the straight dope. A similar issue that we might find when it comes to the news, to politics, our accounting, and just about everything else about which we might want to find information, but don't even know where to start. This, too, then, traces back to the information deluge that we've yet to figure out how to filter. We might be able to research some of these things in the moment with a quick Google search, but that doesn't allow us to function at the speed and quantity we would require to operate in real time, in a world riddled with this type of encoded meaning and informational overabundance. One more vital facet of this issue that I'd like to close with is that of consent. This is a foundational legal concept that tells us whether people are acting according to their own wants and needs, or if they're being coerced or manipulated into doing something by some other party or by some kind of misunderstanding. When we click on a button attached to a giant contract that we didn't read, that act is interpreted by many lawmaking entities as implied consent. That there was a contract there, and that that contract said, read this and click I agree if you agree to this contract, and that we clicked I agree means by some logic that there is reason to believe that we agreed to the contract. The law doesn't know for certain that we have any idea what we were clicking on, or that it wasn't a cat walking across the keyboard that clicked, I agree. But all the same, that consent is implied, which is what has led to the differing statuses of this type of contract in different regions. Some lawmakers think that implication is enough, cats or no cats. Some think that it is not. Informed consent is what we have when it is clear that the person making the decision understands the choice they are making, the particulars of the options available, and how to choose the path they want to take. In some regions, it has been determined that clicking this button legally means that the person doing the clicking is informed enough to do so, and thus their actions have more serious concrete consequences than those who click the button in regions in which that assumption of being informed is not the default. In other words, for the purposes of law enforcement and lawmaking, some legal systems assume that we have all read these contracts, or at the very least understand enough of what we're agreeing to, that they feel okay about holding us to the terms of those contracts post-click. Other places do not make that same assumption, and thus might allow the contract as evidence in court, but won't necessarily assume the person who clicked I agree fully understood what they were agreeing to. I wonder, given the state of things, the rate at which we're exposed to information, and the impact that has on the way we parse that information, 
whether any of us, with very few exceptions, could be said to be informed consenters for any button of this kind that we click. Who, after all, other than lawyers and maybe the irregular artist trying to make a point, is going to spend those nine hours reading all of the Kindle terms of service? Who's going to do that for every single product, every single service, every single company or other entity in their life? And who of those people doing all that reading would have the education necessary to understand each and every portion of those contracts and how they apply to them as individuals? What the ramifications might be under different circumstances? If we were suddenly required to read and understand each of these contracts before clicking, would we have time to do anything else? And if it makes sense by this logic to not read those contracts, not be capable of giving true informed consent, how do we function as a society held together, legally at least, by this type of document? There are efforts being undertaken by some lawmakers and some organizations representing customers and product and service providers right now to simplify some of this language, to whittle terms of services and EULAs down to a single page so that more people will be able to understand what they're getting themselves into, what they are agreeing to before they click. There are also intermediary efforts like the aforementioned TOSDR, that are attempting to summarize what is there now, so we at least have a sense of what we're giving up when we click those buttons standing between us and the things we want to do, the tools that we want to use. Both efforts are worthwhile, I think, but it's difficult to see how far either could go without some fundamental change in how our legal system operates. We can simplify all we want, but without a change in how our laws work, very much including lawsuits, particularly here in the United States, where we are crazily litigious, it's unlikely we will be able to get things down to a reasonable length without linking to a million subdocuments that are arguably just as important as the main summary. And when third parties lend us their time and expertise to summarize these things, that's wonderful, but it's similar to hiring a lawyer to read these things for us. It's cheaper, but also potentially less reliable because we are not paying for the service, and thus the incentives of the people on the other end doing the summarizing are less clear, and potentially less aligned with our priorities. A change in how our legal structure fits together, alongside more foundational legal education for more people, would probably be the optimal solution. But like so many solutions that would require us to take responsibility for ourselves in a way that pulls our time and attention away from other more interesting, more entertaining, arguably more important and valuable, to us at least, things, that's unlikely to happen anytime in the near future, if ever. In the meantime, it doesn't hurt to try to become personally more educated about these sorts of things, about our own individual rights and how they intersect with the rights of others including those of non-human entities like corporations, while also doing our best to grasp the fundamentals of what we agree to so that, however things evolve in this space, we can more intentionally opt in or out, understanding what we can expect in a general way and what we're giving up, if anything, as a consequence of clicking I agree. Thank you. 
The podcast that I'd like to recommend today is put together by the BBC, and it's called 13 Minutes to the Moon. The show uses a fairly dramatic 13-minute period that the Apollo 11 went through on their way toward putting a human being on the moon back in 1969, and it came out at just the right time, around the 50-year anniversary of the moon landing, a moment in history that was quite spectacularly tumultuous for so many different reasons, but which, as an event, kind of brought people together. It was a common conception that this was a human victory, rather than being a victory by just one country, just one nation. And I tend to think that that is the case when it comes to exploration and discovery of this kind. And this show demonstrates that, I think, through interviews and through storytelling and through centering around that 13-minute period. It helps put a lot of that mission and the greater context in which it was taking place into clearer focus. So I've listened to seven episodes so far. I'm not sure if there's going to be more than that. I have no idea how many episodes there will be in this series, but I have definitely enjoyed all of the ones that I've listened to thus far. And if you're keen to learn about the Apollo 11 mission or space, or just want to learn a little bit about history in general, 13 Minutes to the Moon by the BBC is worth checking out. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. You can also find transcripts for newer episodes at that same site. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find my advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and other networks. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. 